Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to part two of our double feature, taking a look back at Cascadia Connect 2022. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, I hope you're ready for more interviews with leaders in robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence, because we have five more coming up in this bonus episode. As mentioned, this is part two of a special two-part episode recorded at Cascadia Connect 2022. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend going back and doing that first. These conversations all took place in Pittsburgh at the beginning of May 2022, where I was gathered with investors, ecosystem leaders, high growth companies, and other movers and shakers in this industry. This was truly a unique event designed to bring all these different players together, and Cascadia Capital deserves a big shout out for bringing us all together in one spot. Now, part one was largely focused on robotics clusters and academia, but today we're focused on two other very significant players in the tech ecosystem, investors and high growth companies. Now, all these conversations have their own flavor, but once again, I'll be asking all of them where they see robotics, automation and artificial intelligence going three years down the line. We have a stacked lineup of guests for this episode, and here are the five people you can expect to hear from in this order. First, Champ Suntiponchai, General Partner at Creative Ventures. Next up, Jeremy Searock, Co-Founder and President at Advanced Construction Robotics. Then, Dr. George Holmes, CEO and Co-Founder of Hire Henry. Asim Dittar, Partner at Madrona Venture Group. And then finally, Fredos Pohawala, Managing Director at Cascadia Capital. Now, if you want to connect with any of these individuals, learn more about their companies after the interview, don't worry, you're going to get to know all of them very well throughout the next hour. But regardless, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022 to find the show notes for this episode where all those resources will be listed. And with that, this has already been a fairly sizable intro, so I think it's time to jump in. As I mentioned, our first guest is Champ Suntiponchai. He's the general partner at Creative Ventures, and we're going to get to know them and the cool range of applications that they're investing in. Let's jump on in. Champ, good to have you here on the show. Thank you so much, Chris. Great. You know, thanks, for, thanks for having me as well. Absolutely. And, and I was looking at what Creative Ventures does, but I'd, I'd rather hear it from your perspective, you know, as if we're having a, a drink with one another. How, how do you describe sure. what you do as a deep tech venture firm? Yeah, so for creative, um, an early stage deep tech venture fund investing in companies that addresses humanity most critical crisis, primarily in labor automation, climate change, and healthcare. And the way that you know, I, I like to say that we distinguish ourselves from a lot of other deep tech fund is we care not about the technology. In fact, we almost don't care about technology. We care much more about the market and the problems that represent itself. So a lot of technologies will be technology in search of problems. Um, there'll be some PhDs that come with the technology and have no idea how to actually apply it to the market. So our specialization is really understanding and looking at what problems are most critical and are most needing to solve, both from a from humanity point of view, but also from an economics point of view, because we are a venture fund. Um, and then we'll find, we'll find the right technology and the right team to implement that. Sure. Yep. Problems first, technology Technology second. second. Makes makes perfect sense. And you know, I've got some questions on on robotics as we get into this. But one thing that jumped out, I was I was researching your LinkedIn profile before uh, I jumped into the interview, and I came across an article that you recently wrote in TechCrunch. And the article was titled, you know, investment in construction automation is essential to rebuilding U.S. infrastructure. So that one jumped out at me, right? Construction, automation, it's not always one of the first areas we, we come into. Right. So why is that the case? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, and the, the construction industry is obviously extremely large. It's about $1.3 billion, uh, $1.3 trillion in the U.S. But what's most striking is the number of labor shortages, which yeah. is growing over the past you know, five, seven years since we're mm-hmm. covering the industry. It used to be about 300,000 people um, under shortages, which correspond to about $10 billion in 
jobs, you know, in, in basically um, salary not paid or that would otherwise be paid to these people. Um, it's grown to about four or five hundred thousand um, post pandemics. A lot of these guys, you know, <clears throat> that works there, average age is about 57. Yeah. Um, at this point, it's like 59, six, in the 60s, right? So pretty much beyond retire, retirement age. And post COVID, people just don't come back to the job site. So mm -hmm. we basically have a lot of things to build, but no one really to build them. Um, construction is really hard, you know, in the context context of manufacturing. It is yeah. almost like a perfect one piece flow. Yeah. Um, things that you build, you kind of customize each of the building. Um, there, it, it, there's no real systematized way to build the building. I mean, there's a construction process, but it's not like assembly line. You don't just pump out each building in the same way. Um, how do you solve for that efficiently? You know, when robotics is also very difficult to be applied, it's unconstrained environment. Um, it's harsh environments. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people on, on the job site, robots, you know, there's a lot of safety issues. Yeah. So that's an area that we, we look at. It's very lucrative. You know, it's tens of billions, not, you know, stealing anyone's jobs, just filling in you know, the jobs, um, the job posting at mm -hmm. this point. And that's something that we're really excited about in, in that space is how to, how to solve for that. Yeah, and, and, and that jumped out at me because, uh, like I said before I asked the question, like you don't always see construction in, right. in the space when you're at, let's say, a robotics automation and AI conference like we are right now. I, I mean, what uh, this, is, this is something that just came up, and I probably should have asked it before. What, what are some of the other, what you would describe as the biggest challenges that need solving right now that, that your company is invested in? Yeah, I'd say a couple of them, right? You know, food service, um, job out, post-pandemics, you go to restaurants, there's no workers as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We've been invested in a company called Picnic Robotics, which is a pizza automation company mm. that essentially, you know, power all, all the big brands on, on the back of the kitchen and, and they just couldn't find um, workers. You know, food service is very low margin. It's sort of like 3 to 5% per per site, um, not not very good. And 20% of it, 25% uh, of it is just purely labor. And you know, they couldn't find anyone. It's thin, race at thin margin. Wages are going up. They're being impacted by fast-growing industry like e-commerce that are raising up the and the wages. You know, so it's what Amazon's now paying like $18, $20 an hour. Um, pooling guys from, from, from these restaurant sectors um, and they just don't have the same margin. They can't burn the same way as, as Amazon, right? So they need solutions to solve these these labor challenges. Mm -hmm. The other one that we're looking at um, is, is harvesting, is agriculture harvesting. Yeah. Ag, ag is difficult because of seasonality. It's, mm -hmm. it's really difficult to find the right play and we've been burned by ag before. So we're very, you know, well accustomed to that problem. Um, unlike most uh, most other industries you know, that doesn't have seasonal issue they use temp workers there's one third labor turnover each year and it's really difficult to find um, problems in, in that space to solve um, indoor agriculture is very interesting mushroom is actually interestingly yeah. an area that you know I, I didn't know until like a, a month or two before and so I'm looking at a company called Tech Brew that we're considering an investment in yeah. um, it, it is solving some really interesting problems it's, it's, amazingly large market um, but they don't have a seasonal issue that we usually find in other, in other crops mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen I've been in a mushroom plant That's before yeah it's a pretty crazy uh, operation I couldn't tell you any of the specifics about it but if I look at the things you've told me about so far we started talking about construction we talked about food and restaurants we're talking agriculture You're all, like, I feel like when we'd have this conversation five years ago we'd still be talking about like traditional factories and right, things like that we're right. really talking about new areas you know I, th these are pretty quick hit interviews but I do want to get a question across to everyone in, in these conversations is where do you see robotics and automation going in the next three years yeah i'd say yeah let's wind back a little bit okay. right because then you kind of see different data points leading the trend um 10 years ago robotics like well man yeah you have robotics you know dumb robotics mm -hmm. just doing very repetitive tasks no intelligence then probably about you know five seven years ago ai started to come up um, yeah Deep minds are beating different Go player, chess player, and whatnot. Um, then you know, suddenly, all right, you know, let's apply AI and computer vision, primarily computer vision, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, into these dumb arms of the robots and yeah. have them do stuff. Um, so now you have arms and eyes combined, and yeah. that's sort of the intelligence. Um, and people tend to focus a lot on how um, how startup has to learn a lot, iterate a lot, mm -hmm. right? But these startups can't 
can't be without a customer. But a customer just takes a much longer time to learn. <laughs> um, and you'd be surprised, you know, that very, very, very few of these corporate customers have any notions of what metrics they actually want to see or need to see from yeah. the startup before yeah. they're comfortable deploying like hundreds and thousands of these bridge robots on the ground. It just takes them longer to kind of learn. They're now coming up to the point where they've tried so many things, they've failed, they've yeah. learned, right? And yeah. everyone has to go through that, that journey. That's completely fine. But I, I believe that over the next couple of years, this is when the robots are going to scale. Yeah. Because I've seen enough data points to be convinced that these customers have, have learned enough to start coming up with very very pointed, you know, three to five things that robots need to be able to do, and then they're going to scale. And that, that's mm -hmm. a really critical piece of information for the industry to actually grow. Yeah. No, scaling, I'm, I'm interested to see how the themes build up throughout these conversations, right? And, and you and I, before we started recording, we're talking about pilot purgatory, which is right. what a lot of people found themselves in. I feel like over the course of the past five to ten years or so, trying all these new things, and as you said, people have tried enough things now that they've kind of learned from the right. things that have failed, and now we're going to start seeing scaling up, as you're saying. So it's an exciting yeah. time. Yeah, very, very much, very much. Well, Champ, I appreciate you jumping on the show. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, looking forward to seeing you throughout the event. Thanks so much, Chris. Cheers. Appreciate it. Cheers. Scaling up. Also, I am hearing more and more every day about applications that I traditionally didn't associate with automation and technology in general, right? Construction, agriculture, restaurants – Pretty cool stuff. Now, if you want to connect or check out Creative Ventures, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. And given that conversation we just had, it's no coincidence that the next guest we'll be featuring is in construction automation. Among other things, we're going to hear about one of the first construction applications that Jeremy Searock, co-founder and president at Advanced Construction Robotics, has decided to automate. You ready to rock and roll? I am. Jeremy, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Great. Great to be here. Thank you. You were one of the serendipitous conversations I was pretty excited to find myself in last night because oh, you're, uh, you're leading advanced construction robotics. And I always love hearing about robotics in areas that, hey, maybe we didn't expect to see them in the past, right? So, you know, of all spots to double down on, why construction? What Give us a bit about your background. Sure. Well, I, I uh, traditionally uh, grew up in the robotics sector. I went to Carnegie Mellon University um, uh, back in the early 2000s when we first started the mm -hmm. uh, desert race and the autonomous car efforts were, were kicked off. And, you know, I was really excited about the future. Um, I My second life, I was a, a military officer, uh, went to the Naval Academy for undergraduate. So I had uh, my service to do in, in submarines, and uh, but I was really excited to get back to robotics. Yeah. And, and I guess, tell me a bit about the opportunity you saw in the construction space, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of growth in robotics in many different industries mm -hmm. uh, and there's applications in every industry. And we're really in the beginning stages of a, of a new industrial revolution centered around thinking the old way business occurred, adding robotics and artificial intelligence. And now you have a new business um, that's going to be, uh, you know, safer, cheaper, faster, Etc. So when I looked at you know market sizes and and uh, opportunities, uh, construction is one of the largest yeah. uh, industries worldwide, uh, twelve to thirteen trillion dollars a year. Um, but secondly, historically, construction has not adopted technology quickly. Uh, it's only in the past decade or so has there been software services that have helped on the project management side of things. So so there's a great uh, gap in technology. Um, and it's more than that, though. There's a there's a large labor shortage in every industry, mm -hmm. uh, but skilled labor in construction has been struggling for 15 years or 20 years, and uh, and and not only that, the productivity rates of the construction industry are one of the lowest, and they're actually declining. So, if you put all those factors together, uh, there's a large demand, not enough people. Something has to fill the gap, and I certainly believe robotics is the best uh, machine or technology to fill the gap. Well, let's get into the, the how it's made element of things, right? Because you're focused on, I think, just one application now, soon to be two. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell yes. us tell us about the one that, that you've started with as your first, like, automated construction application. 
Right. There, there's a lot of opportunity in construction, and we certainly strategically over the long term plan to, to do many products in, in many different uh, segments of the construction industry. So we started in uh, heavy silver construction in uh, reinforced concrete and rebar installation. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Uh, my co-founder, Stephen Muck, also owns uh, Brayman Construction Corporation, which is a heavy civil contractor. So we know a whole lot about the state and have a lot of experts to to help us make the right decisions. Uh, so our first application uh, is rebar installation. So our first product uh, ties reinforcing bar together. Mm-hmm. So uh, when, you, when you build uh, any reinforced concrete structure, uh, you have to lay down these long uh, metal rods, right, called rebar. Yep. Uh, you put them in a grid pattern. Uh, and then before you uh, pour the concrete, you need to tie those intersections together so they don't shift uh, during the pour. Uh, and not only do you do that, typically there's two mats. Typically you have to do it twice. Uh, so you're talking hundreds of thousands to millions of ties. And the current state of the art is mm-hmm. humans bending over all day for weeks yeah. Tying together with with pliers, not good for ergonomics. It is not <laughs> safe. <laughs> not just to walk on it, but but more than that, over the course of a career. I mean, actually, this is this is Construction Safety Week uh, yeah. this week. Oh no way! Uh, and uh, you know, we we run our own uh, little uh, thought leadership uh, podcast that we have on our website, and we talked about this week is that you know the the big gain is over the course of a career uh, as you use robotics, uh, people can work longer. Yeah, uh, people really get hurt over through repetitive motion injuries, and and that's one of the focuses on on robotics. So we so we have a robot that ties reinforcing bar, and of course during uh, our jobs that we've been doing already, uh, people are like, "This is great, but when are you going to build a robot that carries <laughs> the rebar?" Yeah, because boy, that is painful. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine there's there's you know say five or six people in a long uh, row. Carrying 60-foot bars, maybe four or five of them, Mm -hmm. uh, on top of rebar. Very, very dangerous and slippery and hard to walk in grid patterns. And they place it down by hand. Yeah. Um, So coming out uh, this year is our second product, which will lift, carry, and place rebar autonomously. Uh, and then, of course, our first product will come right behind it and, and tie it. So uh, we really are um, doing the, uh, the most uh, man-hour balk, balk work of rebar installation. And I feel like this is going to be like if you give a mouse a cookie, right? Like every time you automate something else, the construction industry is going to give you a pretty good direction of, hey, this job also sucks. Can you do that next? So, Yeah, that's, that's one aspect is that, you know, a, it's in, in some of the lectures and, and conferences they talk about is you're upscaling workers, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, most workers would prefer to do an other job than bend over all day and tie rebar, right? Yeah. Right? And as we use robots to fill that gap and do that repetitive, painful process, the workers, there's plenty of work to be done. Remember, I talked about the gap that mm-hmm. exists, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's more work than per, than people, so it's best that we that we shift the current workers to the higher skilled tasks, which means they're doing b- better work. Right? What are what are the higher skilled tasks in that space? Like, what are people starting to now that they don't have to worry about some of this manual work? What are the cool things they're getting to do then? Well, so we we have um, you know for our suite of robots, and it is our plan uh, that we we send a person with. The robot, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we basically run with the model of you send a person and yeah. a robot and you do the work of an entire crew. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that person, that's a whole new job category. I'm quite yeah. proud of mm-hmm. of this job category because it's it's very matches to the old industrial revolution. So if you think back in the nineteen hundreds, uh, there was new technology, combustion engines and mm-hmm. electricity, uh, and that created the electrician and the mechanic, right? Which is a common known thing now that didn't exist yeah. prior to that technology, right? So we're doing the exact same thing. You know, we have a, what we call them a robot supervisor that mm-hmm. really is supervises that robot or the suite of robots to get the job done. 
Uh, and that is a job category that hasn't existed before. Yeah, we're hearing that in warehousing, packaging. People call robot supervisors, robot Sherpas, crew chiefs. Wranglers, yeah, there's a bunch wranglers of Wranglers is for a good it. one. I like ro- robot wranglers is one of my favorites. It, it's got the Wild West vibe. At least that's my, my personal bias. But, you know, as, as we're wrapping up, one question I've been asking everyone is, hey, where do you see things going in the next three years? I've been asking for many that generally in the case of robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence in general. But, hey, maybe we do it in, in the context of, Automation and robotics in the con- construction industry, where do you see that going? Uh, I just see it accelerating. Like I said, there's a large gap. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity to fill that gap with technology to really make everybody. Every, it's, a, it's a win-win-win for everybody involved. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, now there's, I've been in this for five years. In the past five years, there have been many more entrants into uh, construction technology, uh, and I only see that accelerating to to fill the gap. And obviously, you know, the infrastructure infrastructure bill has been passed, um, and just more and more demand is is coming in. So I, you know, I certainly see in the three years more people coming in, and over the longer term, you know, I do see a future of the job site that's going to be a, a real mix between people and robots. Um, it's not going to be all robots. There will always be people involved. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, the science fiction side that people need to think about <laughs> and get over that, uh, yep. you know, robots are not taking over everything. It's it's a smart machine. Uh, and everybody uh, is happy for the iPhone they have now and the technology they have. So um, that's the, that's what will happen in the future. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what this job site of the future looks like. You're doing really cool things at Advanced Construction Robotics. All have ways for the listeners to connect with you uh, after this episode wraps up. And Jeremy, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, visiting our website and, and our social media platforms are a great place to go. Thanks so much. Thanks. Okay, the data is in, and yes, it seems to show that automation will continue to be increasing everywhere, especially in construction. As promised, if you want to connect with Jeremy on social media or find them on the web, those links are over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. Lots of cool applications on the horizon for sure. Speaking of cool applications, let's talk about another one. We just talked about construction. How about another application with a growing need you might not expect? Dr. George Holmes, CEO and co-founder of Hire Henry, is about to tell you all about this one. George, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk about another practical application in robotics, automation, artificial intelligence. And this is in an area I didn't necessarily expect. We're talking industrial lawn mowing, basically. Tell us a little about this, right? I'm, I'm interested to learn. Yeah, of course. My name is Dr. George Leno Holmes Jr. I'm CEO and co-founder of Hire Henry. Again, we're developing industrial robotic lawnmowers, primarily for cities, helping them maintain large green spaces. Mm-hmm. So we're currently deployed in the city of Sugarland, which is a suburb of Houston, helping them maintain their 340-acre regional airport. We're headquartered out of St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. One of our first pilot programs was with the city of Northwoods right outside of St. Louis. We're spinning up pilot programs on the East Coast. And part of our big goal is, how do we help create the future of work in an industry that desperately needs it? When we look at the future of work, a lot of young people do not want to sit on a rod and lawnmower for eight hours a day in the high sun, especially when they could do an Uber or they can do a DoorDash. So we're going to help landscape and be able to work for the modern worker. Yeah, so how did you... Of all businesses to come up with, how did you come upon this one as, as the problem to solve? Yep. So I grew up mowing grass with my grandfather. He's in his mid-80s, and he's still going to mow about 20 lawns around St. Louis. And growing up, of course, like many folks, didn't really enjoy mowing grass. But for me, it was particularly bad because I had bad allergies. So I would load up on Benadryls. We would mow grass all day long. And afterwards, I would only be able to take a shower and just completely sleep right. Yeah. So this was a personal problem of mine. Didn't know anything about robotics or engineering and started to go to Missouri S&T for mechanical engineering, study primarily manufacturing and manufacturing automation. And in 2018, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation. And we really started to study the commercial landscaping industry and see how big this problem is. And that's when we realized big industry, big problem, looking at the future of work, this is something that we have to address. So we jumped in head first. 
Awesome. So, you know, another question I have is we've been talking a lot about clusters and where there's a lot of concentration around robotics and tech right now. We're here in Pittsburgh. You see it on the coasts, Boston, Silicon Valley. You know, what are your thoughts on the way things are evolving in markets like St. Louis, something that's a place near and dear to my heart. I'm from there. We'll get to that in a second, but I want to hear, let's, let's talk about the perspectives on what it's like being in that area that's outside of some of these, let's say, clusters or these major developing robotic ecosystems. Yeah, so for listeners, I'm also from St. Louis, and I mean, it's great to run into folks from St. Louis all <laughs> around the world and all across the country. Pittsburgh is very unique because there's very few places that you can come to where there's such an emphasis and concentration on robotics and folks that are excited about the future. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited about the fact that huge opportunities are going to come from outside of these clusters. I think that that's how we see founders that have been overlooked. That's how we see markets and opportunities that have been overlooked is by going outside of uh, a lot of the institutions where folks have a common way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you're experiencing the same types of problems. When we talk about robotic lawnmowers in a place like Missouri, that's the show me state, right? Yep. When people ride down the road and they see Henry Robotic Mower mowing the community park or mowing alongside a highway or a roadside, that's when folks get excited. Like, okay, that's what robotics and artificial intelligence is. Mm -hmm. That's how it's going to impact my life. That's how I'm going to be able to get access to fully electric equipment, yeah. maybe get contracts with cities, and be able to create a business and actually impact the world. So that's what we're focused on. I think that uh, growing up in the Midwest and sort of yeah. St. Louis helped to define what that looks like. Yeah, I've got, I've got to ask. So the company's called Hire Henry. Yep. So where do you get that? What's the origin story behind the name? There's got to be something good behind that, yeah. too. Of course. Yeah, of course. My name's George, not Henry. Um, we named the company after John Henry. And if you remember the story of John Henry, it's an old folklore out of West Virginia. Mm. And as the story goes, this guy named John Henry was a hard worker. One day his boss comes in and says, John Henry, I'm going to replace you and all your fellow co-workers with a machine. And John Henry says, absolutely not. Not on my watch. So there's this big competition, man versus machine. And John Henry wins. He beats the machine. But the irony at the very end is that he worked so hard to beat the machine that his heart gave up and he mm -hmm. died. So we named the company in honor of John Henry, the company, of course, being Hire Henry for two main reasons. One, we want to honor the contribution of the, of the middle class, the blue collar worker and making society and what it is today. And number two, going forward, we acknowledge the fact that uh, as workers, we have to work alongside robotics and machines in order to create the future. Yeah, and that's a part of what's going to be required for us to be globally competitive going forward. I love that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I've got to ask you something that you brought up when we met at the bar yesterday. You're talking about how you've got a, a small sampling of customers right now, right? And you're dialing, you're making sure things work well there before scaling up, right? That's now, right. I'd like to get your perspective on, on that strategy, because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this that, you know, might want to start a company, are starting a company. I, I want to make sure people learn from your approach as well. Of course. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for us is um, folks are raising a lot of money, maybe don't have the product fully nailed out yet. And our strategy was start in such a way that we could get non-dilutive capital, we can reduce the market risk, we can have a really strong product. I'll encourage folks to visit our LinkedIn at, at Hire Henry so you can see what this products look like. We just launched a, a new version of the product uh, just a couple weeks ago. But for, our, for us, we wanted to ensure that there was a market, that we had a product that addressed that core problem mm -hmm. before we went out and really started to raise a lot of money. And I think that's a very good strategy, at least so far it's working out for us. We got to wrap with some how it's made style stuff, right? So how does this autonomous lawnmower work, right? Just real succinctly described as if we're having a drink, I don't know, at like a St. Louis brewery or something like okay. that. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So basically we have users that's yeah. able to go into our proprietary software. They can define the mow area. It's very similar to Google Maps where you have that aerial view. Mm -hmm. It only takes about 10 minutes. It doesn't require any advanced training or any advanced degrees. Once that area has been defined, a worker takes Henry, 
places it out in that predefined field, press go, and then mows the grass completely by itself. That allows the worker to focus on high-value, high-impact tasks, like trimming the edges or trimming the hedges or talking to the customer. As Henry's mowing, we use 360-degree computer vision so we can identify any obstacles that come within a 20-foot radius. We'll automatically stop, cut off the blades. We can send a, a, a live video feed to a remote operator that's sitting in the air-conditioned office. That operator can take control of Henry, navigate around that obstacle, and then put it back into autonomy mode, similar to cruise control in a car. Yeah. Once Henry's done mowing, you can imagine a worker loading three or four of these in the back of a fully electric pickup truck, and they drive to the next job site to deploy. That's really important about the fully electric pickup truck because it saves our customers' costs when they don't have to buy big trucks and trailers, mm. especially trying to navigate through crowded cities. That's pretty cool. I love that. This was a great application. I'm glad you were one of the first people I bumped into here. Glad yeah. we got you on the show. Um, you know, awesome topic. I will make sure there are ways to link up with what you're doing. There's got to be videos on the internet of how oh, this course, works as well. LinkedIn, Our, YouTube, at HireHenry.us. Love it. Well, for all the listeners out there, there will be ways to link up with uh, with Dr. Holmes as well as uh, Hire Henry. Check out videos. Those will all be on the show notes page. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Super. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Awesome conversation. Awesome application. Awesome dude from an awesome city. Of course, by now you know that if you want to learn more about Hire Henry or connect with George or check out their YouTube channel, you can do that at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. And this puts us in the home stretch, and we're going to start wrapping things up with another investor conversation. Asim Tatar is our next guest, and he's a partner at Madrona Venture Group. What does Madrona do? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to hear about Asim's career before the VC world. But first, he's going to kick us off with Madrona's very impressive origin story. Uh, Asim, it's great to have you on here at uh, as we wrap up our event. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on, on the podcast and the show. Well, it's our first interview that I think we've ever done with ambient jazz music yeah, in yeah, the yeah. background as well. I don't think anyone can hear it, but it's certainly going on in, in the party next door. So. You should have said you planned it. That'd be much more <laughs> impressive, right? <laughs> I should do all podcasts this way from now on. Got to bring a band, right? Yeah, that's right. So, well, I'm excited to talk about uh, Madrona Venture Group, what you're doing now, getting to know your history. So let's start with Madrona, right? Because you were telling me about them last night and uh they are famous i should say you yeah. your, your company is famous for signing a, a very famous check to an unknown bookseller back yeah then. is that correct that is that is correct actually our founder tom alberg uh was an investor in this company called amazon mm. and so you know madrona has been around for 26 years uh, you know, we are VCs based out of the Pacific Northwest. We invest uh, in, you know, super early, all the way from pre-seed to seed to series A. And then more recently, we've been doing series B investments out of our growth fund. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, we, we believe in, you know, the Pacific Northwest. We believe in great founders, great entrepreneurs. Uh, and we've got a few theses and areas of investment, uh, you know, that, that form the basis of how and where we invest dollars. Uh, but we've done a few notable ones. You know, Amazon was one. We've done Smartsheet, Aptio, you know, UiPath. Uh, you know, uh, those are some of the some of the companies that we've we've been investors on. In uh, you know, TerraClear, that's a robotic startup that's here, is another mm -hmm. one of our portfolio companies. And more recently, we've also invested in you know ML ops, like you know companies like OctoML, yeah. which are transforming the world of uh, machine learning ops. Well, it's like you've already had a penchant for the next big thing back in the 90s and i feel like robotics ai those yeah. areas are the next big thing as well and that's what you're focused on but before that you had a long career at microsoft as well and i'd love to hear what you were doing there and some of the things where you were on the cutting edge in that company as well yeah yeah so you know it was by happenstance i did my master's in engineering at the university of washington mm -hmm. so came to seattle in about 2002 and you know interned with Microsoft and is, have been with Microsoft ever since until I left last September. So I had a 17 year long run at Microsoft, you know, did various roles all the way from developer writing code, to program manager, to go to market, to sales. And then I worked primarily in three big businesses, you know, Windows, which was a very well established business, one, a name that we, we all know, you know, Office, obviously the next big business. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, most recently, for, for the last seven years, I joined this small team, uh, which was called Azure. We were only about like, you know, 100 people or so, we were roughly about 20 million in ARR, and then grew significantly until I, you know, last exited and looked at it, it was about 20 billion ish run rate. So it was a phenomenal journey. And, you know, Microsoft is, is always, like I say, you know, home to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And and you you were able to get a little bit of a, a taste of AI during that time as well. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think look, the way I would describe it is, you know, this is really the next frontier, right? Mm-hmm. I think you look at you know autonomous systems, you look at you know intelligence, you look at cloud that's really enabled this this adoption and this acceleration provided provided an accelerant towards AI. Because if you imagine what were what were machines doing back in the day, they were executing instructions, right? Mm-hmm. But now you're able to sort of train them with a whole bunch of data. You're gonna they they're learning on the fly and they're able to make decisions all, as much as almost humans can. And that really is the next frontier, like which is intelligent machines. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to to be here at this conference and you know sort of see the the applications of AI come together with the promise of robotics to kind of build the next generation of what I call is robotics revolution. How do you feel Microsoft prepared you for what you're doing now, leading robotics and AI investments at Madrona? Yeah, so it's it's uh, in my opinion, I think it's pretty simple, right? Like in the in the Microsoft world, you're predominantly an operator. Mm-hmm. You're a builder. You create things. You talk to customers. You think about go to market. You think about you know how do you scale businesses. And throughout my time at Microsoft, you know, in various roles, you earn you learn different aspects of it, right? The developer, you learn to write code. So, you know, program manager, you learn to run big programs. You get to scale, go to market. You run, you get to run sales. And so, the beauty of Microsoft is, I got, and and again, this is this is sort of unique. I I got this point of view across multiple businesses, multiple industries, multiple customers, varied sizes, varied you know, I would say products. And and it really sort of gave me that left to right view of what does a true P and L look like, mm-hmm. and how do you how do you scale a business? How do you start from scratch? And how do you get it to the point of maturity? And and if you think of the world of startups, like you know what does an entrepreneur think about all of the above in different stages, of course, through the startup. And so so it was a natural you know progression for me to look at what have I learned in Microsoft about businesses and scaling them and can I now take that and apply it into you know a different setting work alongside you know really great entrepreneurs who have great passion for products industries and can I help businesses grow at a, at a much faster rate than market yeah and being on the venture side now you and I spoke when we met at the kickoff yeah. happy hour last night and you made a comment that that stuck out to me when we were talking about 5G, Wi-Fi 6, all of these trends mm-hmm. that are in the space right now. You said it's not why or when this is all going to happen. It's what's stopping it from right. happening right now. I'd love you to go in on that. Give, like, t- tell, the, tell the listeners a bit about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to rewind back a little bit, right? I mean, I, I go back to my days when I was a developer, and you, know, you had to worry about things like code management, you have to worry about performance, you have to worry about memory. Like, you know, uh, you ran out of memory and you had buffer overflows, like, what do you do? In today's world, you fast forward to cloud computing, you're able to just go commission new VMs, like, just go get more compute, like, rent more compute, and it's available at your fingertips. Think about what distributed computing has done is democratized technology, right? It's given it in the hands of every creator at Godspeed. Then you marry that with, as you talked about, 5G and Wi-Fi 6 and these blazing fast networks. And on top of that, you add MLAI at the edge along with transformer models. You can make decisions at the edge. So it's just command control as well as manage at the edge. Mm-hmm. And so that's really made sort of this leap on machines and devices can now do that, thinking that acting for you just the way that humans would if you train them on enough data and if you, if you inject enough smarts to it. So to your question, to me, all these things have lined up that weren't lined up 10 years ago, right? Now you add onto, onto that global macros, right? Like things like what COVID has taught us, more autonomous, you know, touchless operations, you know, more self-serving, more self-navigating, self-controlling. And then there is this, this other sort of tailwind around, you know, the labor shortages that we're seeing across the globe. So now you look at these things and say, okay, great. All these six things line up. So then, 
my comment around what's stopping it, right? I think it's a matter of like, you know, entrepreneurs building great solutions and not just building blocks, right? Platforms mm-hmm. are great and I'm a platforms guy. But at the same point in time, if you're going into these industries and let's say you're building agriculture solutions or you're bu- building solutions in a warehouse or for an automotive manufacturer, you can't just give them building blocks and say, hey, good luck, right? Because they don't have the expertise. They don't have development teams. They don't have, you know, the tech talent. You got to really think about, can I give them solutions that work end to end? Can I prove out the tech? Can I show the ROI? While I sort of go then train them or give them the flexibility to go do things on their own. So I think it's a, it's a balance between horizontal platforms and vertical solutions that, that has, to, has to sort of get to the right level of maturity for this thing to succeed. And I think this ties into what our final question is, and this is the common question, and I'll put a little VC spin on it for you as well. It's like, hey, what, what are your predictions for robotics, automation, and AI over the next three years? Maybe I ask you, where are you placing your bets over the next three years? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, it's no surprise that, you know, my answer would be enterprise software robotics, right? I, I truly believe that, you know, enterprises are poised to sort of go you know, bet on this on, on this new technology. But but I believe that the magic lies in the software, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you fast forward like 5, 10, 15 years, like hardware is going to become commodity, right? And the magic is going to be in the software and the smarts that run on top of that hardware in order to go make that system sync. Uh, I'll give you a very simple example, right? Back in the day, the whole notion of robotics was how do I get the arm... Uh, you know, really mimicking a human arm. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of, I would say, hardware design and hardware, hardware optimization that went into the actual holding of the, of, the, of the clutch or the arms or the fingers of, you, of the robot, you might call it. But now I think you can, you can avoid those investments by controlling it by software. Because what you do is you, you just have to build hardware that's good enough but then software controls it on the fly, kind of the AI piece on top of it, right? Which is all I need to do is to get the arm near the beer glass and it'll pick it up. Right? Yeah. And, and it'll learn. <laughs> it'll try once, it'll try again, but yeah. it'll pick it up. And so, so the smarts really, in my opinion, will come from the software. And, and that's kind of, kind of where we believe the, the growth and the puck is going. Well, I love the example. Uh, just get the arm near the beer glass. Perfect for our happy hour That's portion right. of, uh, of the show. Asim, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much for jumping on. Chris, thank you for having me. This is amazing. Cheers. Thank you. All right, everyone. We have made it to the end, and there's no one more appropriate to have as our closer than Ferdos Pohawala of Cascadia Capital. Before we dive in, I should say that Ferdos has actually appeared on the podcast about six months ago in episode 80, where we really got to know him and the work that he and Cascadia Capital are doing in robotics, automation, and AI. Now, I definitely recommend going back and listening to that. It's at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 80. But today, this is really a way to wrap up this 10 interview marathon. In this conversation, we'll reflect back on the event and get a true inside look at how Cascadia Connect went down. Hey, for dose, we're at the end of the day, and we're actually doing a proper happy hour. Fantastic. This I'm is the way to do, to do it. it. Yeah. Cheers. Mm. Happy to have you here. Yeah. I'm, okay, first question is a basic one. How are you feeling? You just threw a great event, rave reviews so far. We've yeah. had two good podcast episodes out of this, so how are you feeling, man? I feel tired, Yeah, but I feel great Yeah, right at the same time. We've been working on this for a year, mm-hmm. right? And it's been a vision that we've had for longer than that. And we decided last fall we have to make this happen. Yeah. And we have to do it in Pittsburgh uh, because that's where we think foundational robotics preeminence will occur. Right. Yeah. And this is the birthplace of autonomy. It's really the birthplace of robotics. We figured we had to do it here, mm-hmm. but we also had to bring in folks from the coast. Right. So we brought in Silicon Valley Robotics. We brought in Mass Robotics. And we wanted to create the idea of not just the Pittsburgh ecosystem, but the broader ecosystem. So. Yeah. So for me to see all of this come together, to see a year of work, um, and to see the turnout um, mm-hmm. and everybody raving about it positively is just really, really fantastic and just makes me so happy and, and proud of what we've accomplished in getting this off the round in our first year. Yeah. No, this is, I mean, t- yeah, talk about a great, like, first time around, right? You can, you have a lot of the first time excuses, right? But no. you don't need them. No. Like, it worked worked out great. I was excited to be here, and uh, you know, it, what what surprised you about the event? Maybe I mean, it sounds like things went according to plan, which yeah. is always good. But yeah. anything that came out of it, like a pleasant surprise. Uh, the first was the turnout, 
Yeah. We had a max cap of 350 people. Mm-hmm. We invited 350 people, and we had about 330 people show up. Wow. So we were very, very high on the number of people that we had invited and actually came. And that was remarkable. And I think it was a function of the excitement around Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. um, the excitement around robotics, and the novelty of what we were doing. I think those three things coming together now at this time was the right time to do that. So for me, that was the thing that surprised me pleasantly to the upside. So that was the first thing. The second thing that surprised me was just the quality of the participants. Mm -hmm. Right? And it... It's something that everybody here has been telling me. I've had tons of people come up to me and say, we're really impressed by what Cascadia and its partners have done. Just the companies that are here. Mm -hmm. We have companies from all over the country, right? Really high quality companies. You saw a lot of them on the panels. Mm -hmm. We have ecosystem actors, right? We have academics from all over. Yep. And really interestingly, we had a very strong showing of investors, particularly VCs. VCs typically don't like to leave, you know, where they are. And to have so many come, Mm -hmm. right, to an inaugural conference was pretty remarkable. And I was up late last night till about 2.30 sending emails connecting companies and investors. And all of those connections occurred today and will occur through the evening. And more importantly, after the conference, right? What lives on after the conference is really important. Mm -hmm. And that's what has me most excited because those connections were made here. And we know they're going to be fruitful you know, in the months and years to come. How did you curate? This is like a kind of an event planning question almost. Like, yeah. how did you curate such a strong list? Because, you know, the people that have listened to these podcast episodes have, have heard the diversity of yeah. the type of people that showed up, right? Yeah. Like you said, ecosystem, academics, investors, high growth companies, right? How did how did you pull that off, right? I feel like most people struggle just getting people in the door, yeah. let alone the right people yeah. from different different areas of expertise. So... I don't have a determinative answer, but I, I think I know how we did it, right? So yeah. it's a couple of things. One, we've been in this space for a long time now. And yeah. I think Cascadia Capital has developed a strong reputation as you know domain experts, mm-hmm. technology experts, and good actors in the ecosystem. Yeah. Right? So that in and of itself, I think, created a draw. You know, The other draw, again, was Pittsburgh, the ecosystem partners, CMU, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh Robotic Networks. That was a big thing. And then the other thing was just we were very active in engaging with everybody that we wanted to come. So while there were a lot of people here that we hadn't met before, most everybody here we had spoken or interacted with over the past couple of years. So it actually became almost a fun way to bring everybody together that we had been spending time with over the last you know, 24, 36 months. And I think people were excited about that connectivity mm-hmm. with us, but also with each other. Yeah, no doubt. I think the invitation-only aspect provides an element where people are like, okay, it's going to be myself and a bunch of other high-caliber people that are motivated in this space, forward-thinking in this space. That's right. No, it's it's, it's been great. It's been a pleasure talking to all these folks on the podcast. You know, you mentioned something earlier when when we were kicking this off, and I think it's important because we have talked about – um, autonomy in this space. And you were talking about structured versus unstructured autonomy, sure. right? And we yeah. just had um, earlier in this episode a couple different startups on there yeah. doing automation for lawn mowing, doing yeah. automation for the construction industry. Sure. And I think it would be important for you to add your two cents to that. Yeah, absolutely. Pittsburgh, people talk about Pittsburgh as the birthplace of robotics. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's fair. But what Pittsburgh also is within that context is the birthplace of this idea of autonomy, right? And when people think about autonomy, they think primarily about driverless cars and trucks, right? Because that's what we see most of in the news, right? Yeah. That's what we call unstructured autonomy, right? Cars and trucks out on the open road, interacting independently with people. But there's another thesis around autonomy, which is evolving much more rapidly because of the environment that they're deployed in, which is structured autonomy. So think about robots acting independently within a contained environment to perform tasks and collect data. Mm-hmm. Right? So you see that happening, of course, in warehouse and logistics and manufacturing. But where you're starting to see it increasingly is in those examples that you mentioned. Right? Yeah. So robots that mow lawns. Right. Yeah. Robots that autonomously drive around a construction site mm-hmm. or, you know, tie rebar ties. Yep. You know, robots that um, are uh, working on farms. Yeah. Right. Those structured environment applications are developing much faster than the unstructured ones. 
they're getting to scale faster, the technology is proving faster, and the revenues there is faster. And Pittsburgh's autonomy focus has really enabled a lot of those companies to be successful. Yeah. And it's funny, right? I mean, the show's manufacturing happy hours. So when I think automation and robotics, I'm thinking usually manufacturing and warehousing those. You know, this is the first time where I was really hit with a heavy dose of agriculture as well as construction, right? And I think I'm not going to create construction happy hour, agriculture happy hour, but nevertheless, I think those areas are going to start bleeding into the show a little bit more. Maybe change the name to robotics happy hour. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I might need to start protecting all of those. People are going to start getting ideas. Start patenting them. um, uh, But nevertheless, you know, as as we wrap this up, I've been asking everyone this question in, in some way, shape, or form, but what are your predictions for robotics, automation, and AI over the course of the next three or so years. So we're in inning one, Mm -hmm. full stop. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you will continue to see is increased ramp, right? As more and more of this technology becomes real. And by real, I mean the applications work and they're working at or above human level performance Mm -hmm. and they're working autonomously and they can be deployed and they can be done so at a reasonable economic cost. That is going to continue to be happening over the next several years, next three years. And I think you're going to see a very, very steep ramp in the deployment of robots across all use cases uh, in the next three years. And and then right after that, it's really going to go, I think, into J-curve mode, yeah. just given the way the technology is progressing. It'll be exciting. We've got this event coming next year as well. So That's it'll right. be cool to see how those predictions have aged right. after uh, after year one. I know I'll be seeing you around the industry well For before sure. then as well, but hopefully yeah. uh, back here in Pitt at that yeah. point too. Looking forward to it. So, well, one final cheers. Yes. Appreciate you jumping on the show for Dose. Thanks for having Hosting me. such a great event, wrap things up. For everyone else out there, stay innovative, stay thirsty. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning into this two-part episode. And if you want to access any of the resources or connect with any of the individuals that we talked to in either of these episodes, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect 2022. One last shout out to the folks over at Cascadia Capital, as well as the Pittsburgh Robotics Network for putting on such a great event and definitely keep an eye out for this event in Pittsburgh next year as well. I definitely enjoyed it. Hopefully you could hear that loud and clear during these interviews. And on a personal note, I learned a lot from these conversations as well. Not only was I able to expand my horizons on the type of applications that are leveraging robotics, automation, AI, but it was really cool getting to see like all these different ecosystems that are bringing together their unique strengths, right? Like Silicon Valley with its investment community, Boston with its history of successful robotics companies and people that understand robotics as well as the business side and how to scale. Then finally, Pittsburgh, the engineering talent, a history of raw resources and leading innovation. Just bringing all these groups together is impressive in and of itself. But one thing I have to say is whether you're a practitioner, whether you're an investor, whether you're leading one of these communities, or whether you're building the next high growth company, it's an exciting time to be working in this space. Anyway, I hope you all had fun listening to this episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you back here next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.